Dynasties know that every player counts. To build a championship team with a deep bench, you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills. You can do it all with Indeed. Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows that over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. We know at Baseball America, we've got a job posting going up. Where are we going to put it? Of course, it's going to be Indeed. And Indeed has the screening assessments that can help the cream rise to the top. You can select for the skills that matter. With Indeed assessments, you can pick from over 100 skills tests and add them to your job post. That way, you can find candidates with the right skills fast. Join over the 3 million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Indeed knows when you're growing your own business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why with Indeed, you only pay for quality applicants that match your must-have job requirements. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Visit Indeed.com slash Baseball America to start hiring now. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. 2-2 pitch. Swing and a long drive. Deep left. everybody, J.J. Cooper, Jeff Ponce here, Baseball America Prospect Podcast, Rule 5 Preview Edition, version 1, Rule 5 Preview Edition. I cannot promise that you will not see another, you will not hear another podcast from Jeff and I. We <laughs> both have the Rule 5 fever. We both are, we're probably talking to each other too much every day, talking to too many people while we have other stuff to do, because both of us love the Rule 5 draft. We are. As we record this on December 1st, we are less than a week away from the Rule 5 draft, which will be Wednesday, December 7th. Uh, To give a, if you are listening to this and don't know what the Rule 5 draft is, I will give you a very, very quick summary, which is the Rule 5 draft, the major league portion of the Rule 5 draft, which has been going on for longer than anyone in the world has been alive. Uh, It was just called the draft for many, many years, but has been going on since the start of the 20th century. But the Rule 5 draft is a process by which effectively it was developed so that players didn't get stuck. So how that works out nowadays is every team has their 40-man roster protection, their 40-man roster. If a player who's signed at 18 or younger has played has been signed for five years, or a player who signed at 19 years old or older has been signed four years ago. That player, if they were signed during the season, there's a lot of caveats here, but that player is rule five eligible. If they are not on the 40-man roster, a team can pick them, another team can pick them. And then that team has to carry that player on their major league active roster. They cannot option that player to the minors for the entirety of the next season. They can go on the IL, things like that, but they also have to spend 90 days on the active MLB roster. If they don't meet that next year, they still have to be carried further into the next season until they hit that 90 days on the active roster mark. That's the very short version of what we're talking about today. Don't think we'll get into any MILB Rule 5 draft preview today. Maybe again, maybe that's the next pod. But Jeff, (laughs) happy Rule 5 preview week. Yeah, it's uh, 
it couldn't have come at a better time. <laughs> I'm half joking when I say that as we uh, we are full in in off season mode at this point, top thirty mode, top tens are you know sort of getting finished up and uh, you know, we're dotting the t dotting the i's and crossing the t's. If I was dotting the t's, that would be pretty bad. But uh, yeah, and we've we've spent a fair chunk of time, I'd say, since I got back from Arizona, really focusing in on the rule five drafts um who's available we had you know deadline day we already sort of had um sort of uh something we were working off of that had a general idea of who was available uh we've gotten a better idea who's available we saw the milb free agents come through as well so uh, we know who's eligible for the major leagues portion so we've been sort of diligently working in the background and uh trying to identify you know potential diamonds in the rough which is the best part of the Rule Five draft? Like we're a front office, so I think we've done pretty well so far. We got a bunch of names. We got more names rolling out, um, and some really interesting players that we discussed and have you know added to our three versions of the Rule Five preview that we've already put out <laughs> this week. Uh, so if you haven't checked it out, baseballamerica.com. I believe by the time you see this, we will at least we are on Rule Five draft preview version 3.0 right now. And our plan is we'll be at like version 8.0 by the time the uh, Rule 5 draft arrives. We're adding at least, we're trying to add at least 10 players a day. Um, and I will say right now, we are not running out of names. Like today's edition, I felt like was probably the players on it are every bit as likely, if not more likely to be picked than the players we had on day one. Because the other part of this is, is that we are talking to people and as we talk to people in baseball, we hear more names. We keep adding them to the list. And so we, we kind of get nice, interesting tidbits. And we kind of, again, the goal is the goal, the dream that I've always had for many a year is to have the year where the Rule 5, Major League portion of the Rule 5 draft ends. Major League portion. We'll never do this with the minor league side. But the Major League portion ends and we go, Wow. We previewed every player who was taken in the Rule 5 draft. And I think Jeff shares that dream or thinks that I'm crazy for, for, for believing that we should do that. But, I mean, that's the goal. And it's a almost obtainable goal because we are talking about a draft that is usually between 10, 12, 15, and 25 players who are taken. So... If you write up enough players and you, you have the right names, you, you might get there. But um, one it's day, the shotgun approach. It's the sh <laughs> well, it is because the other part of this is is the funny part of this is is as we kind of talk about, we're going to talk about big picture of this, and then we're going to talk about a couple of the players that we really like. We'll get to that before the end of the pod. But the big picture part of this is is it's funny when you talk to when I when I talk to scouts about Rule Five players, and you'll hear sometimes like. Eh, I mean, that guy's pretty flawed. And the answer to which is, yes, he's Rule 5 eligible. There is, this is the island of misfit toys in some ways. No one is available. In the time I've done this, and I've been, Jeff has too, but I, I, between us, you know, we, I've been, I've been diving deep on the Rule 5 draft for well over a decade now. And in that time, there has never been an eligible player for the Rule 5 draft who I would say that is a perfect prospect. Now, 
when you say that, you say, oh, okay, are there really ever perfect prospects? If Adley Rushman was available in the Rule 5 draft, I would say he checks every box. Mm. If Julio Rodriguez was available, I'd say he checks every box. There's never been a player in the Rule 5 draft who checks every box. They wouldn't be unprotected if so. Like, you can say Josh Hamilton was the perfect prospect in the Rule 5 draft. You go back to 2007 because he checked every box, but except for a very big one, which was he had barely played in multiple years because of drug suspensions. That's and drug issues. That's that's a box, you know. So you had he didn't have upper level minor league experience. That's a box. The players that we are talking about here are players who all have flaws of some sort. That's why they're available. But at the same time, at the same time, I do also think that there are players eligible this year and are eligible every year that can help big league teams. So. Jeff, I will ask you, as you made your first, second, third, and I believe we're up to 55th pass at the eligibles list now, (laughs) what are things that stand out to you? What are things that you are looking for that say, okay, this is why this is a player that we will talk to people about, and this is a player that we'll walk right up? Sure. So, um, you know, last year where we had prepared for, you know, covering the rule five in a similar fashion. Um, I think we've advanced a little bit more now. Um, there was a lot of time because there was no rule five and it was canceled. Um, we had a lot of time to look into it and do um, some research just in terms of what makes a successful rule five pick and what makes, you know, more often than not a rule five pick just in general, regardless of whether they stick or not. And, mm-hmm. you know, particularly on the side, of you know players that stick and i think that ultimately this is what teams are looking for is a player that they can actually keep you know long term and turns into a major league asset for him um there were certain benchmarks on the hitting and pitching side and you know some of it was was based on production um some of it was based on particular skills within that production and a certain threshold that they had to meet i think a bigger part of it though is upper minors experience and it can go both ways where you know having that experience in double a in particular is really really important that seems to sort of be this jumping off point and i think we can get into a larger conversation here we won't but between you know what the skill level is at double a versus triple a and really what the differences are etc cetera, etc cetera. um but i think guys that have had a certain threshold of production at double a and are below a certain age though i think that's been impacted somewhat by the cancellation of last year's rule five and you know the missed minor league season so that might be off a little bit from what it had been previously but certainly you know guys that spent a majority of their year in triple a are under 26 years old and you know for hitters really guys that hit have a slash line above 260 um 340 400 in the previous year to selection seems to be a pretty good sign that the guy has a better chance than others of potentially sticking on the pitching side it's tended to be that double a thing or above innings mattered having above 40 to 50 innings seemed to sort of be um a breaking point for guys that get picked but also guys that potentially can't stick um and it can come in a variety of roles it can be guys that were starters that were later converted to relievers. There's a lot of those guys that within season were sort of had a had a role adjustment. Um, and then there's, you know, also a fair amount of, we'll say, just 
you know, relief only guys, but less than you would expect. It sort of seems like the, like the, 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 the perfect point is like 50 to 70 innings and somewhere between like three to nine starts tends to make a lot of sense. And then when in there, you know, 25% um, K rate or above below a 10% walk rate. Um, and I think the other one that seemed to be pretty sticky was um, FIP. So fielding independent pitching or, you know, ERA estimator below 3.6 seemed to also sort of signify that this was somebody that was within range of being picked, but also had a good shot of potentially sticking. Uh, and I think what it goes to say is upper miles experience with a certain level of, we'll say above average or above the average production across a bunch of different levels seem to signify that those guys are probably the best. And that's what I've tried to base my process off of in terms of who we're chasing and going after um, and sort of writing up. And there's some other factors in there too. I think we can look at individual school uh, skills and sort of outliers that have made our lists as well. The thing that kind of stands out with that also to me is you hit on it. Like I think that the starter turned reliever, like the starter, the minor league starter who becomes a reliever as a rule five pick is a nice demographic from the standpoint of those are players who they have attributes that will play well. Like we've seen it over and over, over the years, there's a difference between players who get picked and players who stick the players that get picked. You will see the guy, the big arm guy who it's like, okay, if this clicks, it's an elite reliever, let's say. Mm -hmm. Usually that player, though, is available in the Rule 5 draft because their control is iffy, that it's very shaky, or they're, 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 not, they're far away from the majors or whatever that is. That player really usually has trouble sticking because the reality of it is, is that I, – I, I will back up to say the reality of it is, is that's usually a player who is stashed, I would say, on a, as a Rule 5 pick. And the thing, having studied this for, you know, again, way too many years, player, the idea of taking a player who is not MLB ready, carrying him on your roster as a rule five pick for a year, then the next year sending him back to the minors for further development, which then leads to him becoming back up later and turning into a top talent. I can't give you an example where that's worked. I can give you plenty of examples where teams have tried. Alan Cordoba. Uh, I I thought that Luis Torrens was going to be an example. I really did. I thought that yep. Luis Torrens was going to be like, hey, this is a guy where this worked out. Well, Luis Torrens did get traded to the Mariners from the Padres. We picked him in the Rule 5 draft. In the same draft as Alan Cordoba, the year that the, the, the Padres took the top three picks thanks to trades in the rule five draft dominated a rule five draft. Like it's never been dominated before, um, but they traded Luis Torrens and then Luis Torrens was a backup catcher for the mayors who's been designated for assignment recently. Yeah. So I can't point to him as a success story. Wei Chung Wang, like there's guys over the years where you see teams do this, where it's like, okay, we know he's not ready. Elvis Luciano just a couple of years ago with the blue Jays. Yeah. You see this, and the thing about it is, is it doesn't work. And part of the reason I think it doesn't work is kind of what we're talking about right now. Like, that is such a needle scratch moment in their development. They're coming along, they're coming along, 
and then all of a sudden stop we're putting you in the majors and they're not ready for it okay they're not ready well then you say hey now we're going to send you back to the minors to continue working on it well these players are human and the major league life and the class a or even double a life are different for one thing but another is they have just lost a year plus of development compared to their peers, which means that they are now in some ways further behind. It just is, again, it's a tough demographic. I like what you said. Guys, players who have double A or higher experience are much more likely to be a productive rule five pick than someone who doesn't. And right now we are going to find exceptions. And one of the reasons we're going to find those exceptions is because the 2020 season, there were no games. You know, so you do have examples like Akil Badu, who had a very good rookie season as a Rule 5 pick, not nearly as good of a second season. But it's not surprising to me that that draft class ended up being really good. Akil Badu, Garrett Whitlock, Tyler Wells, we could keep going. It was a really good Rule 5 draft. Obviously, we didn't have a Major League Rule 5 draft last year. I mean, truly, when I say shed a tear. I'm so excited. We're going to be back in the room for the first time in person at the rule five draft next week, winter meetings. First time since 2019. Mm. Oh, that feels, that feels nice (laughs) to say. Um, But the other part of this is, okay, this is one thing I did want us to touch on. And I do think that the roster rule changes this year may play a factor in the rule five draft. We're going to dive into that right after this quick break. So, Jeff, this is also the first year that we are talking about a Rule 5 draft where we are with a 26-player active roster, not a 25. How do you think that could affect the Rule 5 draft? Yeah, well, you know, I think the big question, and we've already brought this up in, you know, previous topics on this particular show, is, you know, can this player stick? We can go out there. I mean, you could go out there and we'll take, for example, the Dodgers, Jose Ramos, who I think is the highest rated prospect on most prospect lists and sites um, among unprotected, you know, players uh, that are eligible for the rule five this year. No one's probably going to take Jose Ramos for the same reasons that you had mentioned where, you know, it's, it's going to be really hard to bring that guy on, keep him on the roster. What this does do though, is it does allow you to take maybe a guy that, was very fringy in terms of sticking on the roster, the active roster throughout the year, and gives you some flexibility to sort of hit those active day thresholds that you need to hit, um, and get that guy some and get that guy some action without necessarily having to use him in key spots, whether it's a, a pitcher or you know a bench hitter or whatever it might be. Um, I think it it not only affords you an extra spot on the roster, but it also affords you maybe you know, um, a little bit more flexibility in how you utilize that person and meet those active day thresholds throughout the season. I also think with it, it's going to help position players because the key thing that's happened with this is, is we went from having 25 man rosters and however many pitchers you want to have as those 25 mm-hmm. to 26 man rosters and 13 players must be, you know, because you can only carry 13 pitchers. 
And if you can only carry 13 pitchers, that means you also have to carry it's 20. It, you're carrying 13 position players. And the thing that that means is, is that in the past, even if you said opening day, your roster was, let's say, 13 pitchers and 12 position players. Okay. But at some point you have double headers come up, you have extra inning games, you have uh, just your bullpen gets blown up for a few days, right? Mm -hmm. There was always in the past that temptation, we're going to bump up, we're going to send a a hitter down, we're going to bring up a pitcher. We're going to be at 14 pitchers for this period of time or whatever. And now you have to carry 20, you have to carry 13 position players, which that's that's where really the 26th player on the roster to me is, is that 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 13th position player. That's where now, okay, let's just work it out. If you have a pretty standard eight starters and a DH, so let's say nine, you have a backup catcher, that's 10. You have a backup infielder, that's 11. You have a backup outfielder, that's 12. Okay, you still got one more spot where you have a little bit more flexibility there. I think this is interesting, though. Like, I go back and forth. I, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Part of me says that that opens a spot for a super sub who is you either carry a third catcher who can also play in the corners, right, first base, third base, right field, left field, can DH, or you carry this player who, uh, Miles Mastroboni type, who can play second, short, center, wherever you need them kind of player. But then there's a part of me that thinks maybe this leads to more specialization because now that you have more position players, maybe it actually works against those kind of players because why do you need someone who can play five, six positions if all of a sudden you're carrying, maybe you're carrying a backup middle infielder and a backup corner who also DHs some and all that, but in corner infielder, as well as a center field, you know, which way do you think it goes? Or I, I guess it could go depending on team decisions. Yeah, I think it depends on, on what your roster decisions are. Like, if you're an if you're an organization that has, you know, a, a first baseman and a DH that you believe are going to see a majority of the at bats, or let's even say you have three guys that could potentially play DH and platoon at first base, depending upon handedness, and you already have those guys in your roster. You know, let's say that they're your, you know, two or three most productive offensive players. It could be whatever hypothetical bottom feeder sort of team. It might make sense to find a versatile position guy with sort of that baseline of of offense. You think he can be sort of a fringe average offensive contributor, but can give you four or five different positions, which there could, you know, could free up some roster spots that you don't already have because you sort of need that utility guy. I think a lot of it's going to depend on what your roster situation is, what your upper minors depth and 40 man roster situation is, because if you have guys like that on your 40 man roster, there's really no reason to take on any additional cost um, to bring that guy into your organization um, and potentially block somebody that you've developed and maybe believe in. Um, So I think it's going to be very roster dependent. And I guess this is a bad answer, um, a very much like from my insurance background before becoming a, a baseball writer. It depends, JJ. It really depends on, you know, what you're protecting, <laughs> what you have, you know, protected within your system, but also, you know, the deficiencies of your current 26 man roster 
and also 40 man roster. I mean, I can, I can see it going sort of both ways. Cause I could see it being an opportunity for pitchers as well in a particular organization that's maybe shallow in terms of available upper minors, we'll say major league caliber arms role. We don't have to define, you know, the white Sox, someone like that. This could be a win for them where, you know, you're looking to rebuild your bullpen. You might even be somewhat competitive or have a glimpse of a competitive window. And then all of a sudden, you know, you can bring in a guy maybe that throws 97 with a breaking ball. And you're like, all right, this guy could potentially develop into, you know, an impact high leverage arm if everything clicks and we get him with our major league coaches and we think we can do this. I really think it still depends. I think in, in the end, it provides teams more flexibility to sort of choose their own adventure and choose how they utilize this particular asset, particularly in a draft like this where there's more talent available in the Rule 5 than there's been in years before, and we have more information on those players. Baseball America, where hot takes go to die and nuance still exists. Like, <laughs> I, I agree with you. I and So, okay, I'll just give you, like, this is how my brain works. I've been thinking about this too much. But, like, so I at first constructed a case where it's, like, the 26-player roster means that I could see how you could say that that means that a third catcher becomes a more logical addition than it is in other cases. Blake Sable, for instance, who's on our preview list, Pirates catcher. Blake Sable is a catcher, but you could kind of put some quotes around that. Like, he doesn't take catcher regularly as much as he also catches in addition to predominantly, he goes back and forth, but he's kind of fringy defensively wherever you play him. He's a corner outfitter slash catcher, right? But he can hit. I can see a case where you say, hey, see, now there's the chance to carry a third catcher and there's value in that. But then there's the other part of my brain that says, well, now, wait a second. So the logic for a third catcher is that it allows you to DH your catch, your other catcher some days, or for whatever reason, at some point you got your can't hit catcher in the game in the late innings and you want to have someone else, you want to pinch run for him. And then you have this third catcher or you want to pinch hit for that catcher. And then you have someone else who can legitimately play catcher to go into the game, which keeps you from being blocked from making a decision that can help you win a game. Okay. That all sounds logical, right? Except for one thing. If you're carrying a third catcher, who's really more of a bat and is kind of pretty fringy defensively, you are then bringing that catcher into the game. In the late innings of a very close game, I assume, because that's why you ended up lifting the couldn't hit or couldn't run catcher and replacing it. Mm -hmm. So you're saying, I'm going to put my fringiest defensive catcher in the game in the eighth or ninth or tenth, let's say, especially in the tenth, and there's a Manfred man standing on second base to start the inning. And on top of that, you have a fire-breathing dragon of a reliever on the mound who probably throws a hundo, probably throws a slider in the low 90s, and you're saying, hey, catch this. And by the way, you can't let any of them get to the backstop because it'll kill us if it does. I can see then the argument that that's the guy, that's the player that you don't ever want in that situation. So why do you need to carry a third catcher? Mm -hmm. Again, these are... These are questions that are fascinating questions, but ones without easy answers See, because it depends on the situation. Yeah. 
I was going to say, like on the catcher thing, expanding on that a little bit, I could see a situation where a team has two catchers on the roster right now, and they have a catcher that they think, we'll use an example, let's say it's Gary Sanchez. So they think Gary Sanchez at this point, we can't we can't fix him. The defense, it's just not going to happen. But we do believe in the bat. We, we think if he was fully focused on hitting all the time um, and didn't have to worry about the defensive work that he was putting in there, was putting that time in the cages, et cetera, et cetera, with our hitting coaches, we think we could turn him into an above average DH that in a pinch can catch. Maybe that makes a guy like, this is one we'll write about that hasn't been added yet, but Pedro Pajes from the Cardinals, mm-hmm. who was voted internally by their organization the best defensive catcher in their minor league system. That included the other Jose, uh, excuse me, Julio Rodriguez, who's a good defensive catcher. That includes Ivan Herrera, who's been a top 100 prospect at points in time. Um, it was Pajes. Pajes can hit a little bit. The issue with Pajes is swing and miss. Strikes out at a high rate. He's going to be a guy that's going to strike out 35% of the time. Can walk a little bit, and there's certainly some power there. He's shown instances throughout his professional career and dating back to his time as an amateur in college that he can hit. So a conversation I had with somebody in a front office over the last couple of days about Pajes in particular was, if this guy can catch and he can provide you, we'll say some of that late inning defensive value mm-hmm. because he is such a good defensive catcher. And he has this tool where it's above average power. Maybe that plays from time to time, but he's going to strike out. It's it's going to be below league average. A lot of guys like that get carried now anyway. Austin Hedges got carried like that. Uh, Sandy Leone was a, was a championship caliber catcher, you know, for the Red Sox and then was traded to playoff teams as they were making a push late in the year over the last couple of years. Guys like that can stick. So I do wonder if maybe with that extra roster spot, it could open up an opportunity for a guy like Pajes um, where he can be, you know, a, be a defensive backup in those late inning situations, can be really reliable, can't handle the fire breathing dragging at the end of the game, but it allows you to take some of the pressure off of, let's say, your your middle catcher, your guy that catches pretty mm-hmm. well, hits pretty well, and also that guy that really should be a DH and allows him to move over to a full-time DH role. That's where I could see potentially carrying that third catcher. could be valuable. I, I, I could see that too. And and by the way, like the flip side of that, like, okay, I do think it also opens up Cam Meisner is on our, our list. And you say, okay, so here's here's an outfielder who's going to strike out, but does get on base, but he can play center, he can play both corners, and he can run. If you're talking about we're going to have a three-player backup bench, right? I don't think you want Cam Meisner as your primary backup in the outfield. Like if you said, we're going to do that, I don't know if he's really ready for that. But if you said, is he your second backup outfielder? Well, then it becomes a little bit different story because you say, I I always envision this. Like, again, my brain works weird. I think that part of the rule five, if you're going to take a rule five pick, part of it you have to think about as an organization is the conversation at the end of spring training, which is you have to kind of try to win over the manager for why I back it up a couple of years. The Elvis Luciano conversation had to be a rough one, which was, yeah, we think that Elvis Luciano should be on this roster. Elvis Luciano, if you do not know, had basically no time above. It was a weird case where the other case for a rule five eligible is if your contract is ever voided and you sign a new contract, 
I don't care if you're 18, 19, 20, the whole four or five year thing gets thrown out. You are immediately rule five eligible. If you're not placed in the 40 man roster that next year, Elvis Luciano was an example of that. So he was picked by the blue Jays having never basically played above rookie ball, short season ball. And that, so that conversation was carry this guy. No, he's not ready. No, you're only going to put him in in utterly blowout games that are out where you're behind because you wouldn't put him on a blowout win because you're danger of not being a blowout win anymore. Mm. That's a rough conversation. But most of the time you're like, have these conversations like, okay, well, why would this guy be able to help us on a roster? A Cam Meisner is an example of a guy who say, here's how he can help you. If there's a late inning situation, you need someone to pinch run, this guy can run. He stole 32 bags and 39 tries last year. Those rules are coming to the majors. So either he can pinch run and maybe steal a base for you, or if nothing else, it's speed on the bases for a guy who, if the ball's in the gap, he can score. All that, right? And then on top of that, whenever he does that, he is almost assuredly better defensively than someone you have in the outfield. So let's say he scores, you take the lead. You want your best defense out there for the remaining two innings of the game. Well, Cam Meisner is going to be one of your three best defensive outfielders. Okay. And then you say, well, can he play beyond that? Well, he can hit enough to where you could pick out spots. You can pick out spots to start him in games and get him some at-bats as well. I think that those are the kind of conversations that get real interesting, which is a nice natural segue. We're not going to give away our whole Rule 5 preview list. And if we did, by the way, if you, I mean, those are full reports on there. We'd be here for another hour to go through. <laughs> but, but Jeff, who is, uh, we will give you a teaser. We'll give you a taste of what's on there, which is, I'm going to ask you first, who is a player on our Rule 5 preview or that you're going to add to our Rule 5 preview that you think makes a really logical sense to be picked in the Rule 5 draft? You know, I want to uh, I, I want to take some more time here to uh, stump on my guy that I've been stumping for for two years in the Rule 5 draft. And I think there's an opportunity he's probably going to get picked this time. And that's Dodgers first baseman, Ryan Noda. I'll say this. If you look at some of the, the players that were uh, not added to the 40-man, particularly for the Dodgers, they have numerous talented players, which I'm sure probably shouldn't be a surprise if we know the way the Dodgers scout and develop and the type of players that they sign and come out of their system. Um, probably reminiscent of the way the Yankees had been for many years where it seemed like two Yankees relievers like clockwork would get taken in the rule five draft. Um, I think we're going to have something similar with the Dodgers. It may not be specific to pitchers. I think Ryan Noda is really interesting. Noda was drafted by the Blue Jays. Um, I think back in 2016, 2017, if I'm not mistaken, uh, was acquired pretty much for nothing um, from the Blue Jays by the Dodgers prior to last season. And all he's done throughout his his minor league career is gotten on base in an incredibly high clip, hit for power, uh, can handle multiple positions. He's a first baseman primarily, um, but I will say this just from talking to scouts and front office folks, uh, he's considered one of the better defensive first basemen, particularly in the upper minors. Take that with, with what you will. Uh, he can also handle a corner, not necessarily you know, at a 50 level, but enough that he can pinch uh, or sort of uh, cover in a pinch. I think the thing with me for Noda is it's elite chase rate numbers in terms of he doesn't expand the zone. Um, it's a plus approach. It's below average bat to ball skills, but he's about a 70% contact hitter over two years in the upper minors. 
Um, so not a number that, you know, completely scares me off. Um, and he hits for plus power and he doesn't have to sell out for it. So I think this is a guy that, you know, I'm willing to say, you know, we talked about hot takes dying. Maybe this is a bit of a hot take. I'm willing to say that he's at least better than 10 starting first baseman in the major leagues right now. I, that I think is a hot take. There's I not enough nuance to that, Jeff. You know, you gotta gotta dial it back a little bit. <laughs> I I I just I look at his ability to get on base, I look at the power, I don't think the contact is that much of a deterrent overall. And the fact that he's actually a good defensive first baseman and can provide some value there. Uh, you know, I look at some I look at some of these guys that are playing first base on a daily basis, and you can't tell me that Noda doesn't have more upside than Bobby Dahlbeck does at this point. I think he does. That that, that is an an, an interesting uh, viewpoint. I, I will say I will not go with you on ten. I'm not saying that he's not better than someone out there. I do not think he's five? better than ten. <laughs> I go to two to three. That's why he's rule five yeah. eligible. These are the misfit yeah. toys, but. Um, the guy I want to highlight is, again, we talk about uh, organizations that do a good job of talent. I want to look at the Astros outfielder, Corey Jolks. Um, and the key thing to me on this is, it's written up in our preview, he's a fascinating player to me because he is a player who has taken what was a weakness and turned it into a strength. If you looked at Corey Jolks, and we were talking about him, who was Rule 5 eligible last year, but if we were talking about him last year, going into the season especially, you would say, eh, he's a corner outfielder. You can put him in center, but really you don't want to. He's a corner outfielder who hits a little bit, doesn't have nearly the power you want to see from a corner outfield profile, right? Go look at his transactions. There's that June 29, 2021, they sent, they placed him on the developmental list, which is a new addition where you can, it's not hurt, it's not suspended or anything like that. It is, we are pulling you off of an active roster to work with you on some aspect of your game. And Corey Jolks went to Florida to the Astros complex and worked on hitting for more power for two weeks. And when you talk about, did a switch get flipped? Before that time, Corey Jolks had 1,200 minor league plate appearances. And do remember, again, 2020, there was no season. So this is not over the course of like a week or anything. Over multiple years, Corey Jolks had hit one home run every 73 plate appearances. Since that little trip to Florida, Corey Jolks, over a season and a half, 800 roughly plate appearances, one home run every 19 plate appearances. An entirely different player hit 31 homers in triple a go back to what Jeff said about guys who have upper level experience hit 31 homers in triple a this year after hitting, after going on a power tear in the second half of the season at double a Corpus Christi the year before, this is a player who has now shown demonstrably that he hits for power, that he can hit homers admittedly in the Texas league and the PCL, which are good places to hit homers. But I look at him now, he's always had a, a solid hit tool, but he now has power as well. And that to me becomes a very interesting profile. He is not JD Martinez. He is not. I'm not saying that. I let me strongly emphasize I am not comparing him to JD Martinez. But I cannot. <laughs> well, but I come cannot on, JJ. Help, 
I, again, this is where hot takes go to die and nuance lives. But I will say I cannot help but remember that the Astros had an outfielder who could hit with limited power. And then J.D. Martinez figured out how to tap into power. And what happened? J.D. Martinez became J.D. Martinez. He just did it with other teams. Again, I am not saying Corey Jolks is that, but I am saying that Corey Jolks has demonstrably figured out how to hit the ball in the air to get to those home runs that were essentially turning into ground balls and line drives before that, which is added to his game and makes him, to me, a very intriguing Rule 5 prospect. I, I know this is a teaser. I will say, if you enjoy those two stories and those two cases, hop on over to BaseballAmerica.com. And we say again, as we say on every one of these podcasts, hopefully, thank you to our subscribers. That is subscriber content. That is what allows us to spend the time doing this. Jeff and I are, I mean, we go back and forth on this. Jeff was working on this until I don't want to know how late last night. I get up in the morning, I take my kid to school, and I knock out like three or four of these reports every morning. So before, you know, before, before the day really gets going, because we also are working on our top. Jeff has two top tens and top thirties for the top for the West that he's working on. I've got three top tens. I've got to finish top thirties. I got to finish for the handbook. So we've got a lot of other stuff going on, but thank you subscribers. This is what allows us to do. You are allowing us to fulfill our dream. And right now, Jeff and my dream is to cover the rule five draft in the way that you deserve. And so thank you. If you check it out, baseballamerica.com, I believe we have, 35 right now, 35 reports up. If you're checking this out on Thursday, we'll have 45. If you're checking it out on, on, I'm sorry, on Friday, you'll have 45. If you check it out by Monday, you'll probably have 65 reports on there. And by the time that we're, we're going to be at a hundred, probably by the time the rule five draft rolls around on Wednesday, Jeff, that was a long dialogue by me, a long monologue by me. Before we wrap this up, any other rule five aspect that we haven't covered that you think that people should know about. Yeah. Well, there'll be an article coming out on this. And I think maybe in our next uh, rule five breakdown, we can talk about it a little bit further, but um, I think the impacts of the five round 2020 draft and the pandemic are still being felt. And we actually haven't even seen those sort of waves under the ocean really hit the surface uh, yet with the rule five draft that's coming in 2023. And it's going to have an impact on, how many players are available um, just based off the sheer numbers. You had a five round draft. You had a little bit under 200 um, non-drafted free agents. And when you compare that to um, 40 round drafts where you had well over 900 players signing into the, each of the 2018 and 2019 seasons, there's a big difference when you look at how many college players will be available next season. There won't be an international class that becomes uh, available in 2024. That would be the first year that those high school players are available. So there's going to be a lot less players overall. There'll be a lot less hangover from the, the 2020 college class and that 2024 class. So we really may not see a return to normal with a Rule 5 draft coming up until 2026 when all of these classes have sort of fully uh, filtered out. And then we'll move on to a 20-round draft, which, again, has an impact on what the overall numbers are. I feel like that. Two years from now, when you take away the lack of an international class, plus it being the first year of high school players, but, you know, there being a smaller class of high school players, 
Yeah. You may be able to write up every first time eligible rule five. <laughs> we're, we're not going to do that, but we probably could because there will be that that many fewer. I mean, it is going to play an impact in this. This is, this is the last normal one. The, the other thing I did want to end it with, and we might have a piece up before the, the rule five draft on this, if we have time. But the other part of this that is worth remembering is, is because we didn't have a major league rule five draft last year, please shed a tear with me on that. But while, because we didn't, we did have players who were, who potentially would have been picked who were available, but there was no draft. So they weren't picked. And Oscar Gonzalez, who played a key role in the uh, guardians postseason run was a regular for them. And at sometimes was their entirety of their offense. <laughs> Oscar Gonzalez is an example of a player who he may not have been there if there had been a minor league, I mean, yeah. a major league phase of the rule five draft, because that they, they tried to protect everybody, but they couldn't protect everybody. And by the way, that's the other thing I think it's worth also adding on this. You're going to see the same team's names. Like there's a reason that we've got a lot of rays and a lot of pirates and a lot of guardians and a lot of Dodgers. There are teams where you're like, I, this, this is, I'll, I'll wrap it up with this. If you look at the other reason I love the Rule 5 Draft, and by the way, one other thing I love about the Rule 5 Draft is, is it changes lives. If you are a low bonus signing minor leaguer and you get picked in the Rule 5 Draft, your life is better from day one. Yeah. If you never are on a big league opening day roster, if you get sent back, you now have become a player who's been on the 40-man roster, which means that your minor league salary takes a nice big jump. If you make it for a month at the major league level and then get sent back, you probably will make more money in that month than you made over the entirety of your minor league career. Again, other than the signing bonus if you got a big bonus. It is a life changer that way. But the other thing it does, you saw this at the roster protection deadline, which to Jeff's credit, I was busy in top tens. I check it out. If you have it, Jeff wrote up every player, every prospect who was added to 40 men rosters with the exception of John Singleton, who's not technically yes. a prospect. <laughs> He's not a prospect anymore. He is. He had graduated from prospect status, but Jeff Definitely. wrote up everyone with the full report, which is awesome to check out at baseballamerica.com. But the other thing with this is, it forces teams to make decisions. We see this every team. I, I'll give you an example, which is, again, there's a story at baseballamerica.com. We love covering this. There were 10 first round picks who were left unprotected. First time eligible first round picks who were left unprotected. That was that inflection point, that decision point where teams had to essentially lay out their cards. They may say before that, oh, you know, we're hoping this player develops you know, okay, maybe he's developing a little slower than we would like, blah, 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 blah. What they actually said, though, on roster protection day is there's no other way to put it. If you are not protected the first time you are eligible for the Rule 5 draft, what you are saying is this player has not developed as we hope they would develop. Simple. If you're a first-rounder, if you're a 10th-rounder, it's a different story. If you're a first-rounder, first-rounders always get the ben the benefit of doubt when it comes to protecting them. Greg Jones with the Rays did not develop this year as they had been hoped. He had a poor year at double A. He got protected. Why? 
give the benefit of the doubt to the first rounder. Those 10 first rounders who were not protected, that is a inflection point. That is a decision point. But we also saw it with trades. When we talk about teams that are deep, look at how many trades the Rays made right around the deadline because they had players like Miles Mastroboni and Xavier Edwards and Brett Wisely, where JT Chargua, where it's like, okay, guys who on their roster are in that 35th through 45th players as far as a 40-man roster. There are other teams just like, this guy's easily going to make our roster. So what did they do? They made trades. That's another point of this. The idea of it is, is that instead of a player, to take Ryan Nota as an example, instead of a player being the 45th player in the Dodgers organization, which may not lead to a uh, big league job, it may be the opportunity for him to go to a less talented, less, less deep organization and get a shot. That's the point of the Rule 5 draft going back I mean, really, if you go back to the start of it, and this is, uh, I'll, I could go on with about the Rule 5 draft for way too long. But if you go back to the start of the Rule 5 draft, at the start of the 1900s, why did it arrive? It was because you had players who were being stuck at levels below their level of talent. And I'm not talking about just the majors. I'm talking about they were in Class A and they should have been in Double A, or they were in Class D and they should have been Class C. And what it meant was, is it was, at a time where every player was under contract in perpetuity, it meant it was a way that a if a AAA team saw a player who was worth being on their team, it was a way to acquire that player, to draft that player. If a major league team saw the same thing, it was a way to acquire that player. That's what this still does now. And that's why I still think that the Rule 5 draft, and especially as much as the players who get picked, the mechanisms of having to protect players on a 40-man roster and the risk of losing players if you don't, if you take that away, it the structure of this kind of loses something because you need to have a way to force teams to make tough decisions because if they left to their own devices, they're going to keep kicking the can down the road because they want to just hold on as much talent they can. That's what I love the Rule 5 draft. Jeff, I will give you the closing, you know, the closing comment because, again, I just get worked up and just go on monologues here. Yeah, no. Um, I think uh, there's a lot of content to come. You know, excited for how many of these players that we, we you know, end up just writing up and covering, um, sort of seeing what, t- what direction teams go. And then you'll also get uh, – sort of a follow-up from me where uh, I'll continue building my my fictional expansion roster and uh, the Rule 5 draft will be a heavy portion of that and players that were available for the Rule 5 draft and unprotected, I don't know, it might just be available in my expansion draft. So I'm uh, paying close attention. We have a lot of different content coming out, hypothetical and reality-based on the Rule 5 draft. And uh, I just want to thank all of our listeners and subscribers. Uh, we'll be back with more Rule 5 draft coverage from the Rule 5 draft. And and that's, yeah, we will be keeping the coverage coming. I promise you, if you care about the Rule 5 draft like we do, we will, uh, I mean, we, we're both going to be in San Diego. We may do a live stream, basically, uh, the night before, possibly. We'll see. Mm. Like, depending on if we have time and internet that will do it. But we'll see. But at least we will be, I, I, I'll be shocked if we don't podcast again. about yeah. the Rule 5. Oh, I think we will. So, But for Jeff, I'm JJ. So long, everybody.